Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I found that I was starting to get really tired. You know, I was like 23 and had this seemingly really successful, exciting thing going on. And again, I was super grateful for it, but I was getting very fatigued and quite exhausted. And I'd get home from work and I would feel so stressed in my body. I looked unhealthy and it just didn't feel right. And I could just tell, I was like, this is not going to be sustainable. Like if I'm 23 and feeling this stressed, this is not going to be good as time progresses. Hello, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. So this week, we have a guest who I met around 10 years ago when he came to take my meditation training in New York City. His name is Jesse Israel. And what I remember finding remarkable after meeting Jesse that first time was how passionate he was about learning all aspects of meditation and how influential he was with his peers. Usually, when somebody would recommend their friend to learn meditation with me, their friend may or may not reach out, and rarely did they sign up for the training, but not Jesse's friends. Almost every single person that he referred to my training, and remember, this is before meditation was huge, they ended up taking the training. There was just something infectious about Jesse's enthusiasm for meditation, and it just made you want to give it a try, which is why it's no surprise that Jesse went on to build one of the biggest non-digital meditation platforms for millennials called The Big Quiet, which is a touring mass meditation event set in epic landmarks in big cities around the world. Jesse has gone on to facilitate guided meditations at huge companies as well as on some of the biggest stages in entertainment with everybody from pop star Miguel to the queen of super soul herself, Oprah Winfrey. And I'm super excited that he came on to At the End of the Tunnel to share some of his backstory of how he went from starting a music label out of his dorm room at NYU to ending up in my meditation training to starting his global meditation movement. I think you're going to love his story. And one of the takeaways that I got from hearing it in more detail is whenever you're at a crossroads in your life where you start doubting what to do next, always err on the side of going inside of yourself and then ultimately just being yourself. And without further ado, here's Mr. Jesse Israel. So thanks for coming on to the podcast, Jesse. It's an honor to have you. And I'm I'm really looking forward to taking a deeper dive into your story. I usually like to start these conversations off talking about childhood. And so Mm. if you can remember, what was a toy or an activity that you really enjoyed from back when you were just a little kid? (laughs) I love this question. 
I used to love making animation videos on my, on my parents, like big ass old school video camera. And it was an opportunity for, for me to like bring inanimate objects to life. And the way that I would, um, Hmm. I would, I would do it is I would film on the video camera and then I would use two TVs with VCRs connected to each other to go back and forth to edit. So this was like way before digital editing. The video camera that my parents had was like the size of my full arm. But it was a way for me to really start to express my imagination in ways that I wasn't able to see otherwise in the world in front of me. Would you show it to people what you created or what did you do with it once you once you finished a project? Yeah, I would screen them to family members and, you know, like at big gatherings, like over Thanksgiving when the family would get together. I would recruit my other cousins and family members to create these stories with me. And, uh, and it was just, it was really exciting to be able to screen them. But it also was when I first learned the power of storytelling, which led to what I wound up doing in college and for a lot of my career. Were there themes of these, these animation videos? Yeah, let's see. I loved action. So there was a lot of like explosive, (laughs) you know, I would like, I would get like firecrackers and attach them to things that I would build. I would do like love stories between little Lego characters. I also really loved like taking different random objects and having them come together to create something unique as a whole, almost like puzzle pieces. Yeah, that's how I remember it. Wow. And so you grew up in Los Angeles, correct? Yeah, I grew up in LA. What was your family dynamic like? Did you have a stable, solid childhood or was it a little bit different from that? Yeah, I I was blessed to have a a really, really great childhood. My dad worked a ton as an entrepreneur and built a business from scratch. And he wound up working pretty hard. And I know I, I later learned that that created a strain on my parents, but I was never aware of it as a kid. And because my dad's business really started to kick when I was, I don't know, probably around like seven or eight. My mom was able to work from home and really just focus on raising my sister and I. So I got to spend a lot of time with my mom. And then when my dad would come home from work and on the weekends, I get to spend a lot of time with him. And a tradition that we've had in our family since I was a kid was that we go on, we go on three trips together as a year. So I've been able to have a lot of special moments with my family. And my sister and I used to argue a ton when we were kids, but now she's she's 31. She's a little bit younger than me. And she's one of my best friends. Nice. And did you remember having any sort of mental challenges when you were a kid or, or in terms of mental health or not so much? Well... It's interesting because I really looked to my like my middle school and early high school years, like around seventh grade when I was 12, as some of my my peak Jesse feeling like himself moments. <laughs> I felt really free and expressive when I was when I was a young guy. I dressed really funky, I would bleach my hair. I was really creative and I would express myself in many ways through leadership. You know, I, I, I loved rallying my, my fellow students to break the rules or to torment a teacher if that teacher wasn't treating us right. Or, you know, I talk about how in eighth grade, I was on retreat 
and they put all the boys in, in, in one area and all the girls in another area. And we were separated. It was a retreat in the woods somewhere. And at 2 a.m., I led all the boys in my class on a mission to go break into the girls' cabin and freaked them out. Mm-hmm. They went crazy. And the teachers got really upset with us and said, if we hear from one more boy and if we see one flashlight, we hear one sound, whoever's responsible for it is sleeping with the teachers. So I rallied all the students, all the students to, on the count of three, make as much noise as possible, flash all of our flashlights, go crazy, because they couldn't have all hundred of us boys sleep in, in their cabin. And it was, and it, and it was great. It was actually the, the first time I learned really like the power of collective experience of, of, you know, shared accomplishment in, in this case, breaking the rules, but it really united all of us, united all the, you know, the jocks, the nerds, whatever the different groups were, we, we all really felt a sense of camaraderie through this. And the reason why I mentioned it is because I wound up getting in a lot of trouble through that experience. I was, I was placed on two-year behavior probation when I was 12, meaning that if I got in trouble once, once at my school, I'd get expelled. And it was in that moment when I first started being able to remember start, uh, experiencing anxiety. Because there was this thing that was so important. It was how I expressed creatively. And then there was this intense res- constraint placed on me. If I got in trouble at all, that I'd get, I'd get, I'd get kicked out. And I had to go to a behavioral therapist. And it's when I started to hold stuff in. So I remember eighth grade starting to feel anxiety for the first time. And starting to kind of question myself and hold back. And that's when I remember started starting to get into my head. Which would later you know, lead to a much fuller relationship with mental health challenges. What was the conversation like with your parents at that time? Because did they, is that something, the, your, your leadership and the power of the collective experience, was that something you felt like, like you inherited from someone specific or did they have an opinion about all of those little experiments you were running? Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Well, I do think that I learned a lot about how I lead and 
and how I prioritize social gatherings and, and how I go about leading and organizing social gatherings through my dad. He's um, a really special, charismatic man who just has a way of seeing people and gathering people and getting people to connect in meaningful ways. And I've learned a lot from him. And I think that even at that age, I was already taking notes and applying a lot of what I learned from my dad to situations like those. However, that stuff wasn't being reflected at that time in my life. At that time in my life, my parents were very upset with me because they were concerned about the behavioral issues that I had. And I had these issues when I was in elementary school as well. So the conversations that we had then when I was young were, were really about me getting in trouble, my parents getting frustrated, you know, seeing my mom cry, which was very rare because of this, you know, the situations I was putting myself and my family in. It created a constraint on us, but it was also a really cool opportunity for us to grow as a family. You know, I, I wound up being invited to speak at my graduation about my transformation because I wound up being a troublemaker. And then by the senior year, you know, I was like class prefect and did class president and all that kind of stuff. And a big part of my transformation journey was how I worked through this stuff with my parents and the space that they would make for me to talk with them, to talk with a therapist. You know, I, I learned in these troublemaking days that it was okay to talk about stuff, even if it was uncomfortable. And I learned about therapy at a young age. And I think that, th that these moments definitely played a significant role in the work that I do today, which is so much about not only being quiet, but having space to talk honestly with each other. Did you have peers that you could relate to in terms of this transformation that you went on? Or was that something you kind of had exclusive relationship with your parents about and your therapist? I didn't, you know, when I was, when I was younger and I was going through this stuff, my other friends who were, who were into, you know, troublemaking in the way that I was, they wound up getting expelled from the school or other peers I became closer with after this period in my life. So it, it felt kind of like a solo journey or a journey I went through with my parents. Mm, that's interesting. So I'm assuming you were looking forward to getting out of Los Angeles and going to university then after, after all of that. Well, I wound up I wound up really enjoying my high school experience, you know, like the the troublemaking stuff was, you know, 7th, 8th grade. I really had to calm it down then. By ninth grade, I became class president and, you know, really started getting more involved with school. The troublemaking stuff cooled off and I, I really started getting into filmmaking, you know, to go back to what we talked about earlier with making films. There was a class that was introduced at my high school in ninth grade where we could where we could, you know, get credit and explore this and learn from a, a filmmaker and make movies with, with each other. And I started to get really you know excited by the ways that I could show up in school. So I wound up really enjoying my high school experience. And by the time I graduated, I was ready for the next chapter, but really, really felt like I very much loved LA and loved my family. I went to New York University. I left LA to go to New York really because I felt like I wanted to challenge myself to be in a new environment. And I grew up going to a, you know, a private high school and was very much like a big fish in a small pond. And that's how I always sort of knew school in my life in LA. And there I was, you know, freshman year of college. And I was in a very, very different situation as a tadpole in a giant ocean. And I didn't know that many people. The city was very overwhelming to me. I was really starting to feel anxiety in a way that I hadn't before. And my freshman year was really challenging and I, I was really considering leaving. I wound up getting really involved with activities and community and, and, and music and creativity when I was in New York and that really helped keep me involved. 
Were you big into music before you went to New York, or was that something you kind of discovered as a part of your your New York life? I was really into film, like I mentioned, going into it, and music became this this unexpected interest and hobby of mine once I was in New York. I got really into the radio station, WNYU, and I was interning on one of the few coveted radio shows at WNYU that was actually broadcast to the full tri-state area of New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. Most of the radio show slots were broadcast through the internet. There was this one, there was a couple slots that were broadcast to the whole city and beyond. Thousands of people would, would tune in. And it was this abstract hip hop and it was avant hip hop and turntablism show. And I loved interning for the host, Chris Tabron, who's an amazing producer and engineer now. And after maybe like a, a year or so of interning with him on the show, he passed the reins on to me and I got to become the host of this radio show. And I was probably like a sophomore at NYU and got to have my own hip hop show and just fell in love with this experience of building communities through the sound waves, having callers call in, knowing that we were all experiencing this moment together through radio. If that was listening to music or listening to interviews or whatever it was. I loved that feeling. And while this was happening, I struck up a friendship with someone who I really looked up to at NYU, a guy named Will Griggs, who was a music industry student and just a really sweet, creative guy. We wound up becoming roommates sophomore year. He was the person that sat me down and said, Jesse, you got to listen to this track. His cousin, Will's cousin, was at Wesleyan College and... At Wesleyan College, there were these two guys, Andrew and Ben, who created a band called MGMT. And they were, they were making songs in their dorm room and playing them at dorm parties. And people were going nuts for them. And there was a song called Kids that they would play five, six times at frat parties. <laughs> and Will sat me down and played me a recording, a dorm room recording of this in our own dorm room. And we both felt like we had to get involved with it. And Will and I wound up starting what would become our record label for the next 10 years out of that dorm room through signing MGMT and, and forming a label to put out their music. And I really fell in love with music through just getting involved with it when I moved to New York. So where's Wesleyan, Wesleyan located? Is that in Boston? That's in Connecticut. It's in Connecticut. Okay. So mm -hmm. he, the MGMT guys were his cousin. One of the guys was his cousin. So Will's cousin was friends with the MGMT guys. Will's cousin went to oh, Wesleyan as well. I see. Were there other people who were competing to manage these guys or was that just like an easy decision for everybody or what was that process like? <laughs> we, we went, we approached them. We went to see them play a show at a different college where they, they performed in front of, I think, 10 people and sat them down and said, hey, we'd like to manage you guys. And they had no idea what that meant. We had no idea what that meant. All we could really bring to the table was enthusiasm an organizational sense that I don't really think that they had and a, a willingness to help them spread their stuff, to help them set up shows and get people talking about it. And we all took a risk without anybody really knowing what the hell they were doing. And they agreed to work with us. And we started off by managing them. And then we formed our record label in our dorm room to start to release their music. And it was just, you know, learning by messing up and trying, which is what I've learned to, you know, throughout my life has been the best way to create. So you were still in school. You were still had a class load 
and you got these guys at this other college in Connecticut who you're managing, which means what exactly? Are you calling up venues? Are you booking shows? What are you doing? Are you booking studio time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the first things we did was we had a friend of ours who was an intern at a studio in Midtown Manhattan. And he was able to have us bring in MGMT after hours, you know, late night, uh, kind of free studio hours. And we were able to record, uh, you know, professionally, some somewhat professionally record the song Kids and the song Time to Pretend and a few other tracks that we wound up releasing on CD and eventually on iTunes through our own label. So part one was, let's figure out how we can get these guys to make a real album and actually put up some capital to press the CDs. I remember we each put up $700, uh, my business partners, Will and Nick and I. And we also set up some shows for them and, you know, made merch and, you know, just, just kind of, kind of figured out. I remember we would, we would sell stuff through our website and we would pack everything through our, at our dorm room and ship it out. And with time, they started to catch some momentum. They struck up a friendship with Of Montreal, an electric pop, an electro pop band that wound up taking them on tour with them. And people started to learn more about them and get more excited about them. And our, we saw our CD sales started to grow and we you know, started to make a little bit of money on their stuff. And eventually, an upstream opportunity came about for them to work with a major label. And that's when everything really went to the next level. Did that include you and your production company when they went to that next level? Or is that where they graduated from each... You guys graduated from each other and, and you continued doing your thing and they did their thing? They graduated from us at that point. You know, we we learned a lot about business when we formed this label. And we were very much these young guys who didn't have any music industry experience, who signed a band that was starting to become popular. And we really did our best to stand up for ourselves and to figure out how we could continue to grow this label. And we wanted to continue to grow with the band. And the way that we were able to figure out a solution forward was that we kept the album that we created with them and we continued to market it over the years. And they moved on to Columbia where they went and created new music. And Columbia put a lot of marketing power behind them to really help them blow up. And, and it really worked out beautifully because although we would have liked to have put out their second record, it wasn't, it just didn't make sense. And it wasn't something we were able to make happen, but we were able to go on and sell millions of downloads of their original songs, which really funded Cantora, which was our label and allowed us to start to sign other bands and to, get an office space and a permanent studio. And we went right from being full-time students running this full-time record label to graduating and having our own office space and studio space in Brooklyn and really, really focused on, on building our music business. So, you know, there was definitely some challenging moments, some learnings, you know, feeling like we were the young guys in the industry and not really knowing what we were doing. And there, every now and then there'd be someone who we felt like was taking advantage of us in that way, but it just strengthened us. And ultimately, it all wound up working out in a meaningful way. And then we had the freedom as an independent label to really do what we want, sign who we wanted. We'd go on to, to do a joint venture with one of the major labels where we could have funding to sign bands that we believed in and do publishing deals. And eventually, we raised a technology fund where we could invest in startups and help those startups navigate the music space and get equity in their company. And that was a really interesting journey, too. So, you know, it, it unloaded, it opened up to a lot of creativity. 
your mental state at that time? I mean, because that's a very exciting thing that you just did. You just launched a group to essentially superstardom and you're this hot new music producer, manager. What is that like at, at 21 years old in New York City? Well, there were a couple elements to it that were interesting. The first was that we were very grateful and very excited to have been on to be having that journey, right? Like to, to be able to be working with a band that not a lot of people knew about to then standing on the, you know, on the street and having a car roll by and having it blasting out of their speakers, right? Talking about a total stranger driving by or like to be at the airport in Ohio and to have like a 16 year old be standing next to me in the, at the, at the bookshop, listening to it on his headphones. Like these were really, really exciting moments. And it was those moments where I really started to get a sense that, anything was possible. And I'll get to the emotional stuff in a second. But I also thought, you know, would think about seeing them perform the first time in front of 10 people. And then, you know, being in my early 20s, just graduating from college, being at Lollapalooza and seeing them perform the same song now in front of 100,000 people, you know, where everyone is singing the chorus together, right? These are like really amazing, pivotal moments for me. Moments where I realized that anything was possible and moments where I realized that there's, there's, a, there's a real power in gathering people through music and through art, through collective experience. So there were some really exciting things forming. There were also some really confusing things happening for me. You know, people saw us as these young, successful guys and we were, but we didn't really know what we were doing. We made, you know, we made some decisions that, that weren't in our favor, uh, you know, running our label. And we were not making that much money, despite what people thought. And all the money we were making was allowing us to go back into building the business and signing other bands. And a lot of people didn't take us seriously in the music industry. You know, even though we were these young guys, you know, found this big, this, this band that wanted to be coming big and growing this label, we got pushed around a lot. And I was, I was frustrated by that because when I later wound up getting more involved in the tech industry, I was blown away by how supportive people were and how welcoming people were and how much people looked out for each other in the biz and the music industry. I found it to be very every man for himself, every man and woman for themselves. And at times cutthroat. And it didn't feel that good. I also found that it was really challenging to be in a business that was drastically changing, right? Like the, the way that people bought music, the, the amount of money that was coming back to labels, it was shrinking and changing fast. And a lot of the work that we did, I think, went unseen by the people that we worked with. I'm not specifically pointing to MGMT. This is just sort of as we continued to work. And I found that I was starting to get really tired. You know, I was like 23 and had this seemingly really successful, exciting thing going on. And again, I was super grateful for it, but I was getting very fatigued and quite exhausted. And I'd get home from work and I would feel so stressed in my body. I looked unhealthy and it just didn't feel right. And I could just tell, I was like, this is not going to be sustainable. Like if I'm 23 and feeling this stressed, this is not going to be good as time progresses. And I was getting sick a ton. I was sleeping poorly. I would get really anxious speaking in front of groups and also I was really blocked sexually. This was like a really interesting thing I was going through then was like, I was this young guy and like really wanted to be active and dating and meeting women. And I really felt blocked sexually. So, you know, it started to become clear to me that like the, the more blocked I was with myself, the more blocked I was going to be with otherwise I showed up in my life. And 
I didn't feel like I could really talk about this stuff with my peers. Didn't really seem like the type of thing you talked about as a man. Didn't seem like a thing that you talked about in the music industry. Luckily, that's changing today. And I, at 23, had my first panic attack and was like, whoa, this shit is scary. (laughs) So I started talking to my parents about it. And my dad had always really been into Buddhist philosophy, although he's a Jewish man. He liked Buddhist philosophy and started telling me, you know, sharing books with me and stuff that I found to be comforting. And through starting to read about some of these new practices and ideas, I I Googled meditation and found a place in New York where I was able to learn for the first time. I don't want to get too, too far ahead, but it was these challenges that I experienced while what was perceived as me running a successful business behind the scenes. I was really having a tough time and it, it led me to all the things I do today. Right. So this is great. I would definitely want to dive into that. I want to go back though for a second. You mentioned, yeah. you said you were stressed in your body. Aside from not sleeping, what does that actually feel like? You get home, what do you actually feel in your body that, that makes you feel you're stressed in the body? And I would feel this sensation in my veins that was like, it felt like there was like a hot oil, almost like oil moving through them, which I think I've, I've later learned is the sensation of cortisol moving through the body. But at the time I was like, this, it just this is sort of this icky feeling. I would feel a tightness in my chest which is where I often feel anxiety in my body and this feeling of discomfort and like a slight sense that things were going to be bad. Like that, like there was doom ahead. And what was Um, your outlet for this? How did you take the edge off? I didn't really have one then. I mean, that has a lot to do with why meditation became so important to me at that time. I didn't really have one. I found that like my, my body was aching and I couldn't really exercise and lift weights and, and do the things that I once did because my body was hurting. So I wound up not doing that. And, you know, a lot of it was, was staying trapped within my body. And no drinking? You didn't drink? I did. I would, I would drink and party. I've n- I never really had much of a substance ch- challenge, but yeah, I would, I would do it, definitely party. And, you know, I, I had late nights. I'd go to concerts and, you know, the music industry can operate on a different time schedule. I don't think any of that stuff helped. But more than anything, I felt almost crippled by not knowing what to do about it and not feeling like there was something I could do about it. And where was the first panic attack? First panic attack? That was in my bedroom, actually. I was home visiting my parents in LA. And it happened when I was in my bedroom. And I just, I remember like my heart beating super fast, getting like really flushed with heat, feeling a tightness in my chest that was unbearable. And this sense of doom, this this sense that the world was going to end. And my body was, you know, ultimately just overloaded with anxiety and stress was breaking down. But I got pushed so far to the edge that I had to sit down with my parents and talk about it. And they were really, they're really amazing when we first started talking about this stuff. Did you think you were the only one or did you think all of your peers were experiencing some degree of this anxiety? I fully felt like I was the only one. I mean, no one else was talking about these types of challenges. Although there are a lot more conversations around this today, then this is like, you know, 12 years ago, Mm. I, um, longer, I guess. I don't know. It's when I'm 35 now. So it's like, yeah, 13 years ago, 12 years ago, people were not talking publicly about this. 
And as a young, successful guy, I felt like it quote unquote, wasn't supposed to be happening to me. And it was really isolating because no one else was talking about it. And I didn't feel like anyone else was experiencing it. And that was really confusing to me. I felt like I'm this young, successful guy. I shouldn't be having these feelings, right? There was this, there was a sense of confusion and a sense of shame around those experiences that made it extra challenging for me. Hmm. Did you feel like going to a meditation center, was that something you would be talking about to people or is that something you kind of did on your own without talking to anybody? Like how did that decision come into effect? I fully made that, you know, my dad had talked a little bit about meditation. He wasn't really that into it at the time, but you know, he, he, he known about it through some of his, his, the books he was into. And I decided I would go check out Buddhist meditation. I went to this place called Shambhala and I did like a, a 30 minute intro mm-hmm. and didn't tell anyone I was doing it. It was, it was a very solo experience. I felt almost like I was on a secret mission doing it. And when I, and, and when I was there, I felt really grateful for the knowledge that I learned. I didn't feel I was connecting with the community or with the lineage. It was all kind of foreign to me. And what it didn't was really the scene feel like, like when place. you walked into that room? Who was in there? How many people? What were they wearing? What, what, did, what was the scene? It felt very much kind of like how you'd expect a meditation center to be. You know, there was volunteers, there was, you know, a kind of quiet, gentle energy. And and it was maybe like five people that took this intro with me. Uh, You know, people were making their own tea and hugging each other. And it was very inviting. It was, it was a beautiful space to be in, but it just, it just felt so far from the way that I lived my life and the spaces that I would, you know, participate in. So it didn't really click to me as a place that I'd return to while having tremendous appreciation for what I learned because I went on and decided, I don't think I ever returned, but I, 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 I went on and I practiced what I learned through Shambhala for, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months, something like that. You know, I would do three minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the morning, and just kind of got myself comfortable with this practice. Got myself comfortable with the idea of meditating and started to understand the benefits until I met a man named Light Watkins. <laughs> okay, before we get to that, what was your what was your Shambhala practice like that you were doing for a few minutes in the morning and how consistent had you been? So the challenge that I set for myself was to do three minutes every morning for a month. And it was to go sit on the couch and meditate using this Shambhala technique right after I used the bathroom every morning. It was like the second I left the bathroom every morning, I'd go sit on the couch, do this technique. It's an eyes open meditation, no back support. You know, the body sits upright, you gaze down gently at the floor. And when you notice that, that a thought is coming to you, you very gently note it. You say thinking and become aware of that thought. And this, this is the process that you go through for the next, for me, in that case, it was three minutes. And then after I did it for about three, and I, I noticed almost instantly how much calmer I'd feel throughout the day and the, the distance, the space that I felt between the things that were creating, you know, reactive, stressful situations in me. And what then became more space to be responsive, thoughtfully responsive. And it was really noticeably helpful just a few minutes. And so I really, my body started to really appreciate it. So I was able to then after a month introduce 10 minutes a day and started doing 10 minutes every morning. Were you telling people about the Shambhala Center or I know there was a conversation that occurred between you and Graham Littlefield. So t- t- just take us, take us through <laughs> yeah. that moment. 
Yeah, people, well, people, my friends, because, you know, I'd be on like on friends weekends and I would go and sit for 10 minutes in meditation by myself. You know, I'd just go over to the corner and friends would start to say, hey, what are you doing? What's that? And I would share about it with them. And then if they're interested, I would tell them more about it and invite them to meditate with me. And so my peers started to see that meditation was this thing that I cared about. I think they also were starting to notice, starting to notice a shift in some of my behaviors and how I showed up. But, you know, it, it was just starting. It was my closest friends were, were noticing that it was something that I cared about. So my buddy, one of my best friends and one of my best buds from high school, Graham Littlefield, reached out to me and said, I know that you've really, you know, you've been getting into meditation. I've learned about this guy, Light Watkins, who teaches this meditation technique called Vedic meditation. And he said, you should check it out. I think you like it. He's like, it's, he offers this training, this, this deep dive. We really understand over the course of four nights, what happens in the body when you meditate, how, what stress looks like in the body and how meditation can be this powerful tool that can be preventative and repair the nervous system. He's talking about all this stuff that I was very interested in. And I hadn't found a program or a person where I felt like it really clicked, where I really wanted to invest my time and my money in something that could be potentially life-changing. So I just kept doing my own thing. When Graham Littlefield told me about you, there was something about what I heard about you, what I saw on your website, the way you were talking about this technique, the technique in general, that just really resonated. Something, something intuitively told me that it, uh, it was something to follow. So mm. I remember I went, I went to, your, to your first intro talk to hear more about Vedic meditation and your teaching style and just instantly was hooked. Before I even took the course, I knew that it was going to be the practice that I'd be doing for a very long time. And I've been practicing it for... I'd probably nine, 10 years. I can't remember. I think it was 20, maybe 2011 when I did the course with you. So yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, probably about nine years I've been doing Vedic meditation. So, okay. You're still working at Kentor when we meet. Mm -hmm. Now you're practicing Vedic meditation and, and talk about the differences in your experience and your enthusiasm level of our meditation at, at, at that point. Well, when I first learned the Shambhala technique, and like I said, it was like a, it was a 30 minute session that I did. And that was it. So I was, I was really kind of on my own path. They gave me this great tool and I was on my own path. But when I took the Vedic course with you, what was so great was one, I, I had a teacher. I had someone that I could reach out to and ask questions to, but also see regularly, you know, I, I would retake your course and I really felt supported in having a practice and I was able to really go deep in the knowledge of what was going on in my body when I experienced stress, but also when I practiced meditation and just really felt like this whole new world was opened up through your teaching and through your leadership. And as I was able to deepen my practice and deepen my learning, I really became committed to meditating for 20 minutes twice a day. And it was just crazy how my life started to shift. It was like, this initial practice that I was doing was really beneficial and started to shift some things around. And then when I was practicing that, and, and I still do today when I was, when I started practicing 20 minutes twice a day with, you know, using the Vedic technique, all of these huge changes started to shift in my life. And it was actually really interesting. It was a couple months into practicing 20 minutes twice a day with you that I started to feel like seventh grade Jesse again. You know, I talked mm. at the start of this conversation about, remembering me in seventh grade as, as fully expressive 
feeling really comfortable with who I was, being able to own my leadership without the fear of what people would think and see. I started to get feelings of that again. And it was an inc- it was an incredible sensation. I felt like I was reconnecting with myself. And so um, the stress in your body had it, had that changed at that point? Yeah. So my relationship to stress really really stopped. So the the things that I was feeling, what I mentioned earlier, those sensations of stress in the body, almost fully went away. And what I noticed was that my immune system started to strengthen. I was able to start to sleep better at night. I started to feel really comfortable with other people. And and it was really meaningful how it showed up with how I could connect with women. I felt a lot more comfortable sexually. I felt a lot more creative. And what started to become clear was that I came to look at a lot of the stress and anxiety that I was experiencing in my life at that period as blocks to myself. And as I had this practice, my relationship to stress started to change. My relationship to anxiety started to change. I started to feel these things less, not totally gone. I still you know, have a relationship with these, with these experiences today, but it started to change in a great way. And I started to feel like those blocks started to shift out of my body. And there became this clear connection between my brain, my heart, my gut. I started to feel like me. And it really allowed me to start to lean into the things that I was really freaked out about before. This is, this is one of the things I was most grateful for with practicing meditation regularly was that I used to have a tremendous fear of public speaking. And it was something that developed after I got in all the trouble for my leadership. It, it formed in this period of my life when I, was, when I was told I couldn't express in ways that would ultimately get me in trouble. and. It got to the point where by the time I was in college, I couldn't talk in front of a group of 15 people or present in front of a group of 15 people or more without not being able to sleep the night before and, you know, almost experience panic attack. So here I was in my mid twenties at this point, practicing meditation regularly. And I started to feel like I could lean into some of these public speaking fears. And this is really important because I was feeling really called to gathering, building community and to owning my leadership again in the way that I did when I was younger. But to do that, I had to speak in front of groups. So I really felt like meditation gave me this opportunity to start to feel into and lean into the things that I was really freaked out about. And in doing so, got to flex these new muscles and got to, and got to bring to life these gifts that are innate gifts of mine that I really don't think I would have otherwise flexed into if the anxiety and stress that I was experiencing was continuing to hold me back from going there. So there were different ways that I could talk about um, that I started to, to flex those muscles and lean into the fear that had so much that has so much to do with what I do now today. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of what I experienced. I remember you coming to the physical therapy studio in the Upper East Side. Right. And I remember you learning to meditate. And then what was remarkable about you is that although I taught at, at that point, I probably had taught a thousand people meditation, but I started getting literally droves of people coming to learn how to meditate. And all of them were referred by you. And I'd never seen that before. And <laughs> I'm just curious what was happening behind the scenes were you were you 
making sending out mass emails um <laughs> how were so many people so enthusiastic about learning how to meditate after you learned how to meditate i was not sending out mass emails i was not printing flyers i know a lot of people and i was you know very active in the music biz and and sort of in the entrepreneurial space and when i would meet with people or see people at parties people would often ask me what what's going on? What are you up to? And one of the first things that I would say that I was excited about was that I'd, I'd learned meditation with an awesome teacher. And it's been this really, you know, valuable thing in my life. And if the person that I, I'm speaking with seemed interested, then I would answer their questions. And if they didn't, I wouldn't continue talking about it. I, mean, I never wanted to push it on people that weren't interested. And a lot of times people would ask me what was different with me. They could like sense that that something was changing. Um, I was really starting to own my my power in a way that I hadn't in a while. So people would ask, and I would say, "This meditation thing that I've been doing has been great." And the other the other way that it would come out uh, up a lot is I was hearing more and more people talk about stress. They were really starting to vocalize how stressed they were, and I would share that meditation was this thing that was really helping me with my stress. And if they were interested, that I could tell them more about it. So those are the those are the entry points. And when I spoke about it, you know, I'd been to your intro talk several times. So I was able to talk clearly about what you were teaching and it resonated with people. This was also a time where like the wellness industry hadn't exploded, where a lot of people were, were looking for tools to explore the same challenges that I thought I was going through on my own. Turns out everybody was going through them and is going through them. And you were a very, and are a very relatable person to talk about these, this stuff with and to provide a tool and a practice that can really give people the agency and the power to transform their, their own lives. And I just don't think there were a lot of options for that or opportunities for that or the people that did communicate about this and offer these things were doing it in a much more traditional self-help way. And I just don't think it really clicked with a lot of people my age. So when I was able to tell people about you and what you were teaching, I just saw time and time again, people were really excited to learn more. And it was very easy for me to say, well, here's, here's this info. Here's the, here's his intro talk. Go check it out. And what was awesome light was that the most important people in my life wound up taking your course and learning Vedic, Vedic meditation. And now today to this day, it's something that, that we all practice together. <laughs> hmm, that's amazing. Yeah. I remember teaching your parents very well. My parents, um, my best friends, my work colleagues, mm-hmm. totally. Now, take us through, you're still at Kentor. You're obviously having doubts at this point that this is the direction you want your life to continue going in. Because one of the things that meditation does is it allows you to kind of wake up to what your real purpose and mission is. So what was that transition like away from music and tech to building community? Well, when I was running the label, on the side, I was leaning more into these community building opportunities. And like I mentioned, I felt like meditation was opening up space for me to take risks and experiment in these ways. So one of the first experiments that I did was, was a bike club called the Cyclones, which still exists today. And the idea was to just get together with a group of friends with people that knew each other and that they would bring people that, that, that they were friends with that maybe didn't know other people. And that we'd go, go on these bike adventures, you know, slow, casual bike rides. People would show up on cruiser bikes. And the first one we did was with 18 people. And I got in front of the group, nervous, 
talking about where we were going to go and why we were going to ride together. And then I, I actually like literally led the group leading the bike pack. And we had this amazing experience. And by the end of the day, when we returned back to Williamsburg, where we started, we, you know, it was, we, it was clear we had, we had formed a, uh, a bike club. We decided we'd call ourselves the Cyclones named after the cyclone roller coaster that we went to at Coney Island on that day's ride. And uh, for the next, uh, the next ride in two weeks, everybody would, would bring uh, a new friend. And by the end of that summer, we had hundreds of people showing up on these bike rides. So I saw that suddenly I was speaking in front of these larger groups. I was literally leading groups of people on bike. And that meant that if I made a left turn and it was the wrong turn, then we would all have to either turn around or, you know, make something new out of that turn. And I started to really understand leadership lessons. I started to really understand like the, the role and responsibility that comes with leading, but also with doing it in a way where we can embrace that we're not perfect and find some of the excitement and joy that comes from unexpected and from the challenges that can come up when one leads or when I was leading. And I just really enjoyed the role. I loved speaking in front of the group and rallying people. And it started to become really clear to me that there was this other skill set inside of me that involved being with groups, leading groups, being in front of groups, creating experiences that were meaningful for people, creating permission for people to connect with each other that I wasn't using as much in my, as my record label, but that I wanted to be using more in my, in my life and in my professional life. I also noticed just because I've been on a couple of cyclone rides and I heard about Burger Club, you started before that, but I, I like that you made a lot of your community building events accessible meaning they were free to attend or they were very inexpensive, but it didn't sacrifice the quality. The quality was always really high as well. So was that something that was intentional in the very beginning or was that something that just kind of happened as a side effect to what you were building? Yeah. So the, so the burger club inspired a lot of my ideas around creating accessible experiences because the burger club started was 10 guys we would eat a different cheeseburger every two weeks. We go to a different place and it, and it was an opportunity for us to not only, you know, eat burgers, drink beer, but to talk about real stuff to, you know, to, to have space, to be in community as men, to support each other through what we were going through in our life at the time. And it was so valuable. It was the first time I really felt a sense of community in New York city. And I loved being in a position where I was organizing these gatherings and getting creative about what we could do and how we could build. And we started having burger, you know, burger boys chapters in other cities in LA and, and in Europe. I loved seeing it happen. But the only thing that wasn't clicking for me was that we were restricted to the size of a dinner table. It didn't work if we had three different tables of men gathering. That'd be three different groups of people. And I wanted to have this, these shared experiences and the value that I was, I was feeling through the sense of community at a larger scale. And the Burger Boys was designed to be a men's group. So you know, we, we didn't have women join those spaces. It, it would have changed the conversations we were having and how we were talking and supporting each other. And I wanted to have a, a community experiences that were co-ed as well. So what I thought about was how can we start to come together in this crazy city where it's so easy to feel lonely, where I often felt so lonely in New York and have an experience where the container for attendees was, was infinite essentially and where anyone could show up. So that's how the Cyclones was born. It was the streets are ours. As many people as they want can show up to come on these rides when we started doing Cyclones, it wasn't a, an event, a ticketed event. So it was just fully free. Anybody could come. And all you needed was a bike, access to a bike. 
So it just created this canvas for all sorts of interesting relationships to be born, for, for friendships to be born, for businesses to be born, for people to fall in love. People have gotten married who met on Cyclones rides. Recently, someone proposed to their partner at the stop that we went to on a Cyclones bike ride where they first met. Like some really beautiful stuff's come from that. <laughs> so creating these spaces where, where, where it could be as accessible as possible has always been really important. And then you left Cantora after the cyclone start? Yeah. And then a couple of years into the cyclones, it just was feeling so clear to me that it was time to move on from running my label. And at that point, we had a tech fund as well through the label. And that it was, it was time to do the next thing. And I really had no idea what it looked like, but I just, I felt so connected to these other skill sets that I was putting to use through building community. And through leading people into, you know, into creating these experiences that felt so fulfilling for me to, you know, give myself to. So I didn't know what the next thing was, but I made the very tough but very clear decision that my growth period at Cantora had come to an end and it was time for the next thing. I find that in transitions like that, sometimes they can happen when they happen because people either stay in it too long and it's like you just, it's just too unbearable. Or they take a leap of faith. Which camp did you fall in? Were you in the leap of faith category or had you <laughs> stayed in a, a year too long? I was leap of faith. It's interesting you say that because before I left Cantora, I was finding that I was advising a lot of people on their businesses and startups and ultimately on life. And a lot of people were coming to me and saying that they were unhappy in their jobs and that they wanted to do something new, but didn't know what it looked like. And there was two camps of people. There was, there was the group of people that stayed in it and kept saying, I want to do something about it, but I'm too freaked out to leave my job. And they would stay in the job. And then there was a second camp of people. And then those are the people that said, I'm really freaked out. I don't have a very long financial runway, right? Money's reality when it comes to this stuff. But they said, but I'm going to take this leap of faith and put myself in the fast lane. And see what comes next. Now, I think that when it comes to people making decisions around, you know, which of these groups they fall into, people need to make their own call about what's right for them, right? Having the support of a business and finances when we're trying to figure out the next thing is really important. So I never push people in either category. But what mm -hmm. I was seeing was that the people that, that took the leap of faith were evolving rapidly and that things were happening. I, I kind of felt like, something greater than them was supporting them when they made right. the decision to leave. Like, like they almost said, Hey, greater power. I trust in you. And I'm putting myself on the line to really give myself to something that feels more fulfilling and is maybe more service to the world. And when people would step into that, I would see really cool things happen. And for the people who stayed in it, you know, the progress was much slower. So mm -hmm. for me, I eventually realized, you know what, I got to make a decision like the, like what I'm witnessing with people that I'm advising because I had about six months of savings, not a ton of savings, but about six months of savings saved up. I decided that I would take the leap of faith and put myself in the fast lane. So I just, I just jumped right in. <laughs> and what happened? Well, the first month or two was very liberating and exciting and I'll say that leaving my label and the process of that was very emotional, right? It was the only business that I had run or been a part of since I was 20 and I was 29 leaving the business and it was really emotional process. So that was challenging, but I, I left, I felt really liberated. I was very elated 
by, you know, honoring and following this feeling in my gut, I traveled for a little while. And then after a couple months, I got back to New York, got to my apartment. It was the winter was starting to kick in, which meant that the cyclones wasn't going to be able to ride because we don't like to, we don't like to ride in the cold season. And I started to experience life in New York while not being a student or not running a business. And it was my first time really as a human, as an adult, not having anything to do, right? I wasn't in school. I wasn't running a business. I wasn't working. I wasn't consulting. It was just open space. And I know I had been terrified of that, terrified. And here I was facing it head on. And, you know, I was like going through this very challenging experience of, of what it meant for my identity to not be working, what it meant to be almost 30 and to have stepped away from the business that I'd spent my adult life building while a lot of my peers were really building success for themselves in their own careers and starting families and buying homes. And, you know, I went through this, this initial period of just a lot of comparison to my peers feeling really freaked out about the future, a lot of self doubt. It was a really uncomfortable period. Then I started to feel this sense of shame around the fact that I was in a position of privilege where I could leave my job to figure out what was next. And then I wasn't able to enjoy it. I was just torturing myself. That was kind of a confusing, you know, situation I was, I was putting myself in. I was very stuck in my head. And right before this period had happened, I was able to give some of my extra time to the cyclones, right? Right before the cyclones stopped riding and before I started to fall into this sort of mental hole, I was able to give more of my time to the cyclones. And we had did that, we had done this project where we raised a bunch of funds to create these bike share programs to help students in rural Tanzania, which is one of the areas that I traveled to when I just left my company, um, but where, where we could help students in rural trans Tanzania with their long commutes, if they had access to bikes. So the cyclones created this bike share program with some nonprofit partners in Tanzania. And I was so jazzed up by rallying the cyclones community and using our collective voice to raise funds for this program. I think we had 600 Cyclones members put on their Facebook page the day we announced our crowdfunding campaign and we had the whole thing funded within hours. We wound up raising three times as much as we needed. So, so I had this period right before it became too cold for us to ride bikes, right before I went into this sort of mental hole and was moved by how much happier I felt when I was in community and creating and collaborating with other people like I experienced through Cyclones and also was really moved by what we were able to achieve, the amount of money we were able to achieve as a community by, by, by putting our, our shared resources and voices together. So I was just really... I was trying to make sense of this. It was like, I'm yearning for community. I feel lonely. I feel like I'm going through this really interesting, challenging life experience that I know other people are going through, but no one's talking about. And I know that there's power in numbers, especially when there's a sense of purpose behind what we're gathering for or what we're sharing about. And it all sort of led to me starting to feel this calling to gather my peers, people I knew from the music industry, people I knew from the tech space, the places I was partying in the city, but to gather my peers and to have space to meditate together because I was seeing, like you reported, so many people were becoming interested in meditation and would look to me for where they could learn. So 
So it, I wanted to have a space where we could meditate together, right? Sh- slow down, share in quiet, which was something that we never did together. That I never did with my work colleagues or my, you know, the friends that I was hanging with or partying with. And then to also have space, not only to be quiet, but to talk about what was really going on for us in our busy lives. So I felt like I had so much to share that I was experiencing that, that I was holding in and didn't really have community to talk about it with. I'm glad you brought all this up because I tell people, and you probably tell people this too, you know, meditation is not some sort of panacea that's going to cure all your problems. Mm -hmm. And you're still experiencing a lot of challenges, even though now you, as you reported, you have this very solid, consistent meditation practice that you enjoy. And at the same time, the practice itself is sort of pushing you to move more into your purpose or your passion or, or the things that make you feel most alive. And I think people may forget that that's a part of the process, right? It's not about getting to a point where everything is all good and everything is comfortable and, you know, you're all set. It's about always kind of pushing yourself. So my question is, were you aware that that was happening? I know it's easy to look back now and and hindsight and see, oh, I was being, I was definitely being guided in this direction, taking these leaps of faith. But do you think you would have done that had you not been meditating? Do you think you would have left Kentor when you did? And and, I really don't. I really don't. And I really appreciate your reflection because this is such an important point. You know, I think it really is easy to think of, oh, we have a meditation practice. We practice regularly. We're doing it for years. We're, you know, perfect beings of light and all's good. And the reality is, like you said, the more that I, I meditated regularly, yes, I was able to start experiencing less stress and anxiety. And then what came after that was, or, or through that process was, a deeper connection to what I really felt like I stood for in regards to work, in regards to how I wanted to contribute to the world, in regards to my relationships, my friendships, how I wanted to show up in family. And layers started to get peeled back as I more deeply connected with this deeper truth in myself. And as I connected with these deeper layers, it brought up opportunities for me to create change in my life that were not always comfortable, right? Because of my meditation practice, I really feel like I was able to strengthen into a form of clarity that it was time for me to move on from my company and do the next thing. It became really clear through my practice. My practice also, I think, supported me in having the courage to leave. And then through that exciting process, I was then faced with a whole bunch of really scary stuff what it meant to really look at what I wanted to do next, what it meant for me and my identity as someone who was a man that was about to turn 30 and in a transition in his career and not a lot of money in the bank, right? It evolved me forward in really exciting ways, but in the process of doing so, I experienced a lot of discomfort and that's continued to be the process for me as I've really committed to giving myself to exposing this truth and to deepening into these layers of connection. So, you know, and I love talking about this, you know, meditation in its power can take us on a process that's not always comfortable because it can really beautifully force us to look at and act on the things that we need to be doing in our lives to experience evolutionary growth and change, not always comfortable. Now, over the past several years where I've experienced this discomfort in the fast lane several times, we can talk more about, I've come to learn how to embrace it. I've come to learn how to have a new relationship to uncertainty and to anxiety for that matter. And I've got you know, a whole new philosophy on it. 
And like you said, I think it's really important to experience this in our life. But at that time, it was confronting because I was confused. I was thinking to myself, I meditate all the time. Why am I feeling this stuff? Mm. I was I was confused by it. And the reality is, once I began not only leading mass meditations, but teaching meditation, I'd still feel this discomfort. I still feel these discomforts in my life sometimes. And when mm. I first started teaching, that was confusing to me too. I, I felt like a, like a phony sometimes. And it's just taking me time to realize that these are the emotions that come with life. There's a lot of beauty and power in experiencing and accepting those feelings. Mm-hmm. Kind of going back to where, where we left off before, which I'm assuming was the start of Medi Club. You and um, Yuvi, who was also meditating at the time, Yuvi has the loft in uh, Soho or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where you had the first Medi Club, correct? That's right, yeah. And what was that? What was that process like? Did you send out an email, or what happened? Yeah. So UV, <laughs> yeah, the first Medi Club. I wrote an email that was that I was going to send to fifty of my peers. That pretty much said, "Hey, I'd like to come together and meditate." and talk about meditation and what we're learning and where we're learning. And then also to be able to talk about, you know, real things that are happening in our lives. And I sent, I actually sent this email to Emily Fletcher, who's another Vedic meditation teacher um, and someone who I was learning from at uh-huh. the time, in addition to you. And I said to her, God, do you think I should do this? Like I'm not a meditation teacher and I don't really know much <laughs> about it. And, you know, I was, I was almost like looking for reasons for her to say, no, don't do it. Cause I was pretty freaked out by it. And she was like, you got to do this. <laughs> She's like, it makes so much sense to, to have a space where people can, can gather and, and meditate and talk and, and to do it outside of a specific lineage. She, she was very supportive of this concept. She even helped me rewrite the email a little bit. It's very kind of her. So I sent it out and I got a really positive response. And in the email, I said, and this has always been my style. I said, I'm not going to send you any more emails about this unless you tell me that you want to keep hearing more about it. And probably half the people wrote back and said, yeah, I want to hear more. Tell me more. I want to be in on this meditation club. And then for the other people that didn't respond, I never emailed them again. But the people that were interested were a part of the first meetup. It was 20 people. And actually at the first meetup, Emily Fletcher helped me lead it. And we mainly talked about meditation, the science of meditation, it was at our second Medi Club gathering, which I actually think of more as the first official Medi Club, was when it was less about the science of meditation. It was less like a class. And it was, it was more of, we're going to meditate together. And then we're going to really just talk about what's going on in our lives. And, and I wound up leading that experience. And it was a really exhilarating and terrifying moment for me. Um, was that first, before or after the medium post that you that you wrote about all of this? Oh, the, the media the medium post is the first email that I wrote. I wound up taking that email and turning it into a post, which is still up online. Several months later, uh, I turned it into a medium post so I could reference it where people would ask about what it was. But that was the, that so was that the, was the email that you sent out the first. Yeah, the, yeah. The email that so the email that I first sent out it said like the first couple words were, "Hey friends, I'm sending this to like you know 50 friends. I've got this idea to meditate together. If you want to keep getting these emails, let me know. And if not, no worries. Please read on to see what I have in mind. And then it's that post. 
I remember <clears throat> seeing that post and it felt like you had the kind of Jerry Maguire moment, you know, when he, in that movie where he does the whole memo about how <laughs> we need to do things differently. It felt like that. And I, I loved how you kept it up as the web, as essentially the medium post link was the website for <laughs> MediHub because you didn't have a website still is. at the time. Right. Which I thought, yeah, was yeah that was yeah. very intentional. It's, it seemed. Yeah. There's still no website for MediClub and it just wasn't, it wasn't necessary. It, it would be helpful for MediClub to have a website at this point, but, <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> it, it's, it was never necessary because what we saw after that first gathering was that something really clicked for people. Having the, 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 the almost vulnerable, kind of awkward space to be silent together when we were used to just building businesses and partying together was odd and meaningful at the same time. And then to have the space where all of these people who really you know, kind of admired each other and probably were slightly jealous of each other were talking about the real shit they were going through and their relationships and their fears and self-doubt around work and purpose, you know, started having these really juicy conversations. And we created this space where we could do that. We could be quiet. We could talk about real stuff. Everyone was welcome. So it just started to grow. And, and after, you know, the fifth or sixth month, we had hundred plus people crammed into UB's loft to be a part of these experiences. And I bring this up because what became clear to me is we didn't need a website. The word of mouth was so strong, people could reference this, this medium post. And there was a way to sign up to get the emails. And that was it. And then for the first three years of MediClub, we would send one email, maybe two. A lot of times it was just one email saying, we're going to gather on this. This is the date for the monthly MediClub. Here's a little bit of information. And that it would fill up. And when we were selling tickets, one email would sell 250 tickets before it'd sell out. And a lot of times the MediClubs would sell out you know, a week in advance. And every Medi Club, there'd be people asking about tickets. It was such an interesting phenomenon to see that the word of mouth was so strong that we didn't need to have social media. We didn't need to have a website and that the people, you know, could spread it. Eventually, you know, I think we reach a point with the community where we want people to be able to access and know about it outside of the realm of the word of mouth of a certain community. It's a way to, you know, diversify the audience. I also remember the first time you started charging for it. That was a big decision. Do I charge for it or not? Because I was in the process of starting to shine at that time. And I know we had had a conversation about charging. And I think you found that even more people were coming out after you started charging for it. Is that, is that my memory correct in that? Yeah. I was really nervous to charge about it, to charge for it. You know, what became clear to me was a lot of time and energy was going into organizing it. And I wanted to, de to devote more of my time and to build a part-time team to help grow MediClub, but I needed to make money to do it. And I was, I was all confused about money and meditation and wellness. You know, I was kind of a big mess around that then. I was all spooked out about it. And then I've decided I would charge for it. And once I did, it was, you know, reasonable ticket price. And we have always, and to this day, I've had spots available for people that can't afford it or ways to volunteer, but we charged for it. And instantly I saw growth. I saw that people started to value it differently. And we had way more people show up that RSVP'd. People were honoring their RSVP a lot more. And I sensed that it strengthened the value of it. It said, hey, this is worth something. And people started taking it more seriously. So it was actually a really cool growth moment for us. And, 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 and from that day forward, I've, I've felt very strong feelings about charging for the experiences that mm -hmm. are created where people put time 
blood, sweat, resources into creating those experiences where there's value for people. I'm not into donation thing. What does that mean? You're not into donation. I did a handful of experience of experiments and a lot of experiments, donation only, free, charged, choose your own price, choose your own price within this realm of, of ticket price. And what I saw was that if you give people the option to choose their own price within a realm of tickets, let's say that there's three price points, 90% of people are going to choose the lowest price point, regardless of if they can afford the higher price point. Mm-hmm. And when it's donation, I saw that a lot of people just don't donate. They forget to, or they don't think it's important to. They wind up not taking the experiences seriously. They don't show up for their RSVP. So what I realized was, I like to say, this is what it costs. And anytime anyone's curious about why we charge that or, or how the money breaks down, I'm happy to share it with people. But we don't usually get that much pushback on that anymore. We did a little bit at first. And I would just communicate to people why we charge and what our costs were. What I found works best is I say, this is the price. And for most of our events, if someone's not able to afford it, there is either an option to volunteer or there's a financial compensation form that we provide where people can fill it out and then we will take care of them at the price where they're able to contribute. But there's a process for someone to go through that. And because of that process is in place, people who, who actually are not able to afford to pay for the event can still be a part of it. But because it takes someone a couple of minutes to go through that process, it filters out the people who otherwise could just afford and buy a ticket. So we've created a system where we feel like we can allow people to be there while also having people support at the means that they're able to so we can you know, operate as a business and, and continue to, to strengthen the experience and scale what we do. So that's why I prefer not to take the donation approach for meditation events and have found a, a means that I think worked really well for us in our community. Let's uh, talk about how this sort of dovetails into the big quiet. What was that process like? So when we were seeing about five, six months into MediClub happening and, and, and noticing that lots of people were showing up for it, it became clear that there was an opportunity to, to share the experience and, and the, the set of ingredients, right? Which was like shared quiet, meaningful conversation, doing it in an environment that felt accessible. That, that there was an opportunity to, to share that with the city at large. At the time, I was on the, the arts committee board for Summer Stage Central Park, or for Summer Stage, which is this festival that would exist in a bunch of different parks throughout the city throughout the summer. This is awesome, mostly free initiative that the city provides. So I pitched that board, the City Parks Foundation board on hosting a free mass meditation at Summer Stage Central Park, which is like, which is their, um, their major venue in the, in the middle of the park. That's a legendary spot. And I said, you know, we've got this community of meditators. It's, you know, mainly young people. There's, you know, a few hundred of us in this community. And they wound up offering us the Central Park venue for, I think, an hour and a half. The full staff allowed us to do a free event up to 1,500 people. And that MediClub would be in charge and responsible for how to promote it, create awareness for it, what would happen on stage. I mean, they really took a, a risk with us. and. I was able to bring it back to the MediClub community and say, here's this awesome opportunity. We've got a date and we're going to do the first, you know, a, a city parks foundation backed official mass meditation at central park. And we got together and different people in the community organized the social media team and the, the publicity team and the production team. And 
it was a really cool collective effort, kind of like what I had seen with the bike club and with Cyclones and how we raised funds for our bike share program. And we now, got when to you, work here. When you pitched the idea to the City Parks Foundation, was it a was it like a everyone was like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. We've been looking for something like this, or did you get any pushback? Or was it a favor? Like what what was the backstory to that? Well, at the time, the City Parks Foundation was interested in bringing more young people, specifically millennials, to their programming and to also, you know, find ways to celebrate community and gather people across the five boroughs using the arts and using culture in creative ways. So when I pitched them on this idea, let's do a mass meditation, and then we'll see some of the great concerts that are set up for the summer. And it'll just be this combo and we'll bring a whole new community of people that we could bring. I was able to talk about it and pitch it in a way that I think helped them understand the value of it to the organization, right? Like a new demographic mm-hmm. of people. But I think that they also genuinely ex- were excited about the idea of creating a moment of goodness, you know, where people could come together and creating something positive that, you know, could potentially have a meaningful ripple on the city. I mean, I, I think that they connected with the values of that. What they were nervous about was meditation can be affiliated with religion. Meditation can be affiliated with specific lineages. And I just had to assure them that we weren't going to take that route. Actually, the way that I was able to assure them of that was I said, look, I'll lead the meditation. I am not part of a religion or a lineage. You know, I, I, I'm, I keep it very, very modern. And I'll work with a teacher of mine, Johnny Pollard, who had been doing lots of mass meditations in Australia to, you know, lead and facilitate that experience. And that was part of the selling point for them was that it was going to be agnostic. It wasn't going to be specific to any lineage or denomination. And it did. They took a rest. They went for it. And I I think they were happy with it. We were really happy with the experience. It was really funny. Right when, within the last two minutes of the big quiet ending, at Summer Stage Central Park, there was a chainsaw competition happening at Central Park that same day, not too far away. And the chainsaw started within the last two minutes of the big quiet. It was beautiful timing. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, it rained. That, I was there that day. And I remember it was like oh, yeah, overcast. Yeah. Well, what was your level of nervousness in, in leading up to the event, during the event, and in terms of people coming out and showing up and being a part of Oh that. man, I was so nervous about that. You know, like I was nervous on multiple levels. One, I was nervous about leading a meditation as someone who had never been through a meditation teacher training. I'd only been trained to guide meditations. I felt nervous about that and like a little bit like that wasn't right for me to do. I felt nervous about how it'd be received and how I'd be received on stage. And I felt really nervous about people showing up you know, we worked so hard to this moment for this moment. I just, I really wanted it to be a celebration for the Medi club community and all the people that put their energy into it. And of course I was going through feelings of wanting to look good and wanting it to be successful. And, you know, a lot, a lot of my, my energy there was going into stuff that was beyond the purpose of why we were gathering and meditating. It was fine. That's part of my process. And then when it, when it rained, I was, I was bugged out because I was really concerned that people wouldn't show up, but a big group of people still showed up and, and sat in the rain during the meditation. And if anything, that showed me the need for those types of gatherings and for that type of community moment. So it was actually, it actually worked out really beautifully. I 
And I think that, again, going back to our previous point, is the real biggest difference in someone who has a, a practice like meditation and someone who doesn't is the meditator just, I feel like they have an easier time saying yes in the face of nervousness and anxiety and doubts and fears. They just keep saying, okay, I'll t- I know I, I'm acknowledging that I feel this way and I'm still going to do it anyway. I'm still going to take this leap. Would you say that that was your experience? Yeah, spot on, man. And, and I've, I've been reminded of that time and time again, that part of what's so awesome about the big quiet community and the MediClub community is not everyone, but a lot of people are medi- have meditated before and they do practice meditations. The way that they show up to unexpected situations or challenges, and we've had, we've had a few big unexpected moments that we've had with our large-scale events. And the way that the community has shown up and embraced them and come along for the ride, just like what I was talking about, you know, running, running Cyclones rides and leading a group of 250 people and making the wrong turn, but suddenly it turns into this new adventure and opportunity for celebration. If we choose to see life and leadership and the opportunities that we're presented with in life through that lens. And yes, when, when people come together in mass who are showing up with good reason and tend to be meditators, some, some really beautiful stuff can happen. And the, and the attitude that people take towards gathering in community can be really inspiring. And so now this has become your new thing. I want you to take us just through the trajectory of Big Quiet since that summer stage event in terms of your personal role in it and did it become your job? Did it become like a full-time gig for you? Did you have to do side stuff? Like what was that process like as well as the growth of the actual company? Well, after that first event at Summer Stage uh, Central Park, I realized that there was something special there. There was a lot of work to be done, but there was something there. So I, I really started to dedicate myself to MediClub, to building out these monthly events, and to the Big Quiet, which would become about quarterly events at a larger scale. And I wasn't able to take it seriously as a business. I kept just seeing it as this side project. We weren't charging for events. And I just kind of kept giving myself to it and working with some amazing volunteers who really contributed a lot of their time and energy to help get off the ground. First, I made the decision to start charging for our events. And that helped. I was like, oh, I'm able to start to support myself. Not full-time, but I'm able to start to support myself doing this thing that I love and that I can sense is helping people. That was a huge moment for me. And then I started getting consulting opportunities to help people build their meditation businesses. And I was like, whoa, this thing that I was not an expert in in the past, just after a year of really dedicating myself to doing it, I'm realizing that I can help other people do it too and to build businesses around it. And for me to make a living, helping them do it. So that became a part-time solution for how I could continue to build mastery and community and, and meditation and also make a living for myself. So that was, that was really exciting. And then I reached this point as the big quiet was growing and we were starting to do big quiets at places like Madison Square Garden and the top of the World Trade Center where we had 300,000 people tune in live and, you know, partnering with institutions like the Museum of Natural History and Lincoln Center, some really cool opportunities and working with great musicians to perform at the events and people open their eyes. I reached this point where I decided that I would stop consulting and that I would just focus all in on the big quiet and on public speaking. Because I do a lot of public speaking about this work, community building, meditation. 
noise, finding quiet, and teaching. Because I, I wound up doing a teacher training with Johnny Pollard through the One Giant Mind Teacher Training Academy a couple of years back. So I really narrowed in. I said, I'm, I'm not going to do, you know, I reached, it took time to get to this point, but I reached the point where I said, I'm, I'm not going to focus on other projects outside of the big, quiet teaching and speaking. And that was scary for me because it, it meant leaving some money, some consulting money on the table. But it also really created a whole new open space for the business and for my teaching and leadership to grow. And, you know, since then, we've been able to work with, let's see, Emily Kessler came on, who's our manager, who's, mm-hmm. who's responsible for how the Big Quiet has grown into a touring entity. We now take the Big Quiet and we, we tour it to cities throughout the U.S. and soon the world. And Emily used to run music festivals and produce festivals and, and manage bands and book venues. She has, a, she has a music industry background as well and also a huge meditator, Vedic, Vedic meditator. So when, mm-hmm. she, so when she and I joined forces, she's now a partner at the Big Quiet. When she and I joined forces, we're able to grow it and take it outside of New York in a really incredible way. And I've just been super grateful for her. And we've been able to have some awesome opportunities, you know, from, from touring like a band at some of the most iconic places, gathering thousands of people in meditations throughout the U.S., to being able to go in and teach meditations to and work with the C-suite at, you know, Fortune 100 companies, you know, to collaborate with musicians that I've looked up to for years, like Miguel, who is a, you know, R&B star, but also a huge meditator who we got to do a big quiet event with 2000 people South by Southwest last year. And most recently I was invited to go on tour with Oprah and, and to create a big quiet moment on her nine city U S arena tour for 15,000 to 17,000 people at a time, you know, hosting mass meditations and also giving a talk about the power of meditation and then having time on stage where Oprah and I talk about rest and the benefits of, of stillness, you know, in front of huge groups. So some, some really cool stuff has grown over the past, it's been almost five years. In June, the Big Quiet will celebrate its five-year anniversary. Wow. That's amazing, man. I mean, the Oprah thing, we could do a whole podcast just on that probably and, and do yeah. a deep dive into yeah. those experiences. We definitely was, could. What's great about your example is that, and I've seen this a lot in a lot of the interviews that I've done, is that literally from childhood, it seems like people have been preparing for their purpose. Their their purpose has been a part of their journey without Mm -hmm. them even knowing it. And you you entertaining and making these videos and, and flexing your expression and leadership muscles back then, and then kind of getting it squashed out of you during that kind of period of time where you were making a lot of trouble and then getting to mm. the other side of that, you know, having that experience of overcoming that is, you know, you, you, you take that with you for the rest of your, you know, through, throughout your twenties and then kind of having to get squeezed into starting a meditation practice. I mean, no, mm. there's no way you could have seen that coming before it happened <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and to become one of the biggest meditation leaders in the world on the stage with Oprah. I mean, that's quite remarkable. It's a really remarkable journey. I'm curious, as we wind up here, if someone else is listening to this and they're thinking, you know, well, I've got I don't really know what I what my purpose is, but I want to do what you're doing. I want to mm. not in the sense of of leading meditations or teaching meditation, but just 
being themselves, finding their expression, whatever that looks like, becoming fully expressed. What advice, what advice would you give to them in terms of maybe two or three things that they can do or not do? Well, the first thing that I would say is to, is to just start doing. For me, I've had a tendency in, 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 my, in my time to just wait until things feel perfect to begin the project. And the one time I made the exception to do that was with MediClub. I was like, you know what? I don't care how this is going to unfold. I don't know. I'm going to make money. I just, I'm so, I'm so like lonely and anxious in my apartment. I'm just going to unroll this thing. I'm going to send an email. People are going to sign up on a Google form. I'm going to listen to what people have to say. We'll see what comes of it. It doesn't really matter if it works or not. And that is responsible for the work that I get to do today. So the first thing that I would say is, is to just start trying, just start doing and activating those ideas. And it doesn't have to be something that has a full written out business plan. It can be something as, as, as simple as a gathering, as a talk that you give, as something that you share online, but just start creating and inviting other people to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. This, is, this has been really important for me. And the other thing is I have found that I'm able to most meaningfully make my contribution to the world when two things are happening in my life. And the first thing is when I have practices where I'm cultivating the self. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is meditation, movement, eating clean. Like I have, I have some very s- specific guidelines that I use around how often I use my phone. I have no notifications on my phone, right? Things to help me stay connected to myself. And, you know, obviously meditation is the most important one for me when it comes to how I cultivate the self. So really making sure that there, that there are tools and practices in place that allow you to do that. And then the second part is cultivating the social, which is having spaces in my life where I feel like I can really be part of community. I get that through the unique friendships that I have with my family members I also get it through a small group of friends that I'm really close with and sometimes through my work, but some, but oftentimes that gets kind of blended between work and community. So it can be kind of confusing, but really investing in a a couple people or a community of people that we can be close with, that we can be heard and seen by, that we can support and go through life with. What I've seen is that when I have my self practices and I have my social practices in place, I'm a lot more impactful. The way that I show up in the world also feels more fulfilling. And I think it's a really important recipe for people to consider when they want to, when they want to do work and be authentic along the way. Cool, man. So I guess people all around the world are going to be able to have the big quiet and slash Jesse Israel experience at some point in, in the, in the near future. What's the best way to, to get in touch with you or to find out about what you're up to? The best way to learn what I'm up to is is through my personal Instagram at Jesse Israel to learn more about the big quiet at the big quiet. And then I also have a personal website, jesseisrael.com, where I I talk more about my my speaking opportunities, the course that I teach and guided meditations that I offer in person and soon online. And thebigquiet.com is a great way to sign up for the emails to learn about when the big quiet's coming to your city. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I consider you to be one of my personal inspirations. <laughs> and I look forward to always supporting anything you have going on. And uh, so thanks. Thanks so much for your example. 
Thanks for saying that light. And I got to tell you, man, it's just, I've been so looking forward to being on your podcast. You know, like I mentioned in my story, you've played such an integral role in my process. And I, I really don't think I'd be here today if, if I hadn't met you and I hadn't learned from you. And if you hadn't been my teacher over all these years. So to be on this show, to hear you say what you just said and to share your reflections about my journey from childhood to right now, just I'm so moved by it. It's such a, it's such a gift to have you in my life and to be able to share this with you. So thank you so much, brother. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Jesse Israel and the epic story of how he founded the Big Quiet. Jesse is still working hard to create on-ramps to meditation, so the practice is more accessible and relatable than ever, and I'm so glad that I got to share our conversation with you. To hear more stories like Jesse's, make sure to check out the other episodes of At the End of the Tunnel. And while you're at it, please take a few seconds to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any of our new episodes that get released each week. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. And as always, you can find links to everything that Jesse and I discussed in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening and see you next time here on At the End of the Tunnel with yours truly, Light Watkins. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.